Hello, Really True Fiction listeners. I want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul will stop appearing on the Really True Fiction feed at the end of the summer. If you are enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts so that you can continue to get notified of new episodes starting in September. Have a great day, and may the force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. My guest today on the podcast is Alex Cormier. As probably many of you know from listening to the podcast, I have recently moved back to my hometown of Nelson, BC, and Alex is someone I kind of knew in high school. He's a couple years younger than me, but we have reconnected in uh, the time that I've moved back because he was hosting a show on local radio called Full Spectrum Cinema, and he put a uh, kind of an ad out, I guess, on Facebook a couple months ago asking if there's anyone in the community who wanted to co-host a show with him on the radio on film. And it's a show called Full Spectrum Cinema that airs 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Kootenai Co-op Radio in Nelson. Because I have this other podcast, Really True Fiction, where I talk about movies a lot, I thought, hey, there's a way of putting myself out there maybe and getting to talk more about movies. So I responded to his message and it has worked out, and we have done about a month now, of, as of time of recording, of talking about movies on full-spectrum cinema. That one, we more pick a specific movie and talk about it for an hour. And so, thinking about it, I was like, Alex will be a perfect guest for this podcast, because he is someone that loves film, as you'll find out. I think he says he listens to about... <laughs> listens. I think he says he watches about 12 movies a week and he is engrossed by film and all of the ways that it impacts our lives artistically and so am I maybe not exactly to quite the degree he is or maybe I'd say our emphasis is a little different I'm more drawn to characters and storytelling which obviously happens in film but film isn't the only medium not that he isn't but I think he's got other more technical or historical interests in film that are slightly different than mine, but still jive pretty well in conversation. And so in today's episode, we discuss his love of movies, and we talk about some of the formative movies in our lives, as well as movies that, what they've done for us along the way, how we're kind of think about them different, what were some of our stepping stones into thinking more deeply about film as a medium for art. We talk a little bit about the difference between adaptations and original screenplays, as well as a number of our favorite directors or filmmakers. And then we kind of end up doing a little rapid fire on our favorite films and particular genres. Anyway, Alex was a wonderful guest and I really enjoyed talking to him and more than likely he'll become one of the film correspondents on this podcast because he's got so much knowledge and curiosity and insight to the world of film that I'm really excited to talk to him more. As you, if you want to hear, can hear weekly on Kootenai Co-op Radio, 93.5 FM, 
CJLY, Nelson, BC. Uh, Tuesdays at 3 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Just before we begin, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who listens. You could subscribe on any podcast app that you choose. You'll get notified when new episodes come out. I try to release them on Sundays. As well as um, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, I would really appreciate a rating and or a review because that's a really good way to help new people find the show and not just five star. I want honesty. So if you feel it's four or three or two star and you have a complaint or a critique, I can uh, more than handle that. If you like the liberal soul, tell your friends. You can join on Facebook. I have a group on Facebook. You can follow on Twitter at liberalsoul87 as well as you can send me an email if you're really interested at theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. So, lights, camera, action. Thank you for listening once again. I bring you my conversation on movies and film with Alex Cormier. And I'm here today with Alex Cormier, or Alexander, I don't know, which is your preference? Alex is good. Okay. I only get called Alexander when my when my parents were mad at me. That right. Was, yeah. Yes. I think probably lots of people, certainly of our generation, I knew I was in trouble if I got Luke Samuel Mason. <laughs> my parents, I was like, oh, geez, what did I do now? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it, Alex is good. Do you ever do that with uh, your kids yet? No, because they don't have names that can easily be abbreviated, mm. Riley and Violet. Right. They do get called Rye and Vi a mm. lot. That seems to be inevitable. <laughs> like, you're just going to chop it down to one syllable. For sure. You know? Yeah. Um, I but, guess you could use their full name eventually. Yeah. But it's uh, different. But no, I do, I, when I am angry at them, all that I have is just yelling, really raising my voice. <laughs> Alexander can be uh, what you go by when you uh, publish a book or something. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's your more um, official title. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it does. It's a little bit has a prestigious ring to it. So, Well, I'm really stoked that you're on the podcast today because... This is another first on The Liberal Soul in that one of the things that I talked about in an early episode is one of the things I love about liberal philosophy is this concept of emergence. And I feel like the two of us getting together is a form of emergence in that you chose to post something on Facebook and I chose to reply to it that probably neither one of us had planned in the first place, but putting ourselves out there because you're the host of a radio show in Nelson here which I'll let you talk about in a second, but you posted an ad or a, not an ad exactly, but a request mm. on Facebook for a potential co-host. And I uh, gave you my accolades, so to speak, on that domain. And uh, so now you and I are actually co-hosts on a, on a radio show here in Nelson, BC, which is pretty cool. That kind of thing, like I don't think either of us could have planned the other person in that scenario. And yet the only reason, and it, seems to be working out so far that happened is uh, one of emergence which i love <laughs> yeah i fully agree it is neat how that how that worked out because i was i started the show well i i had the idea to start it for a long time but i didn't have someone to do it with and i wasn't interested in doing it solo so i kind of went ahead with getting the plans for the show anyhow and then i found someone who i knew a bit and he did it with me for six months and then he had to leave and I was stuck doing it alone for three to four months and 
I had actually put requests out for a co-host on Facebook that when you responded, it was my third time. Mm. It's your like last ditch effort. It really was like I was very close to abandoning the show, I guess, because I was I wasn't getting that much out of doing it solo. And the other two times people would respond, but then I would contact them and then they would basically say like, oh, yeah, it sounded fun, but I don't have the time or I don't, you know, they weren't seriously interested. And um, then you responded. And I'm just so pleased with how it's worked out, you know. Yeah. And maybe just for people who don't know, why don't you give a little description of the show that the two of us now run, I guess, (laughs) program? I don't know the right term for radio. (laughs) Yeah, program, I think is is the term. Yeah. So yeah, it's called Full Spectrum Cinema. And basically... Each week we pick a film, although in the past there has been times when we've done two films, but usually one film, and then we try to discuss it and analyze it and sort of analyze all aspects of it over the course of an hour. Mm -hmm. And we cover all types of films, typically not as much mainstream stuff, but I have no objection to that either. Uh, So I should put away my Avengers request for next episode. (laughs) Oh, that would be a hard one for me. I'm kind of a kind of a hater on the Marvel movies right. for the most part, but don't worry, it was just a joke. <laughs> if you picked it, I would I would give it my best mm. shot. I'll say that. Well, not so unlike Creed, that's your sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's been lots of fun. Um just to like kind of bookend that thought. Maybe I haven't really talked to you too much about this, but one of the exploration aspects of this podcast is to unearth the value of like liberal society. And for Mm. me, one of the things I've really learned about it is that liberal society is often free people mingling together and associating in ways that they're interested in their self-made communities, which I would argue even a two people talking about movies on a radio is a form of a self-made community, right? It's a common interest. And that comes from an emergent property, which is, uh, following those interests, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I just think that it's cool that for today's episode, that's a kind of downstream effect of that kind of value in action in the world, which is like Facebook being used in the way it's supposed to be used kind of thing, like connecting people who wouldn't otherwise necessarily get connected. Yeah, absolutely. It's rarely used for that purpose. (laughs) And many others. Yeah. I did, I was a liberal arts guy in college Mm. that's kind of where my interests have always been and um I was kind of disappointed in a lot of cases like I studied a lot I took a lot of literature courses Mm. and often I found that a good chunk of the people there maybe this was because of the schools that I was going to as well it was an elective they kind of had to take it so the conversations weren't as lively Mm. um sometimes i felt like a bit of an outcast because i really wanted to talk about this stuff and so that was a lot of the that's what i love about podcasts and um film podcasts and that's why i wanted to get into doing the radio show was to kind of have the the sorts of discussions that i always wanted to have right in in college Mm -hmm. yeah that's too bad, too, because I remember having awesome conversations. I mean, I'm sure you did have some good ones, <laughs> among oh, yeah. some of the poor ones. But yeah, just those memories of staying up 
kind of late maybe and maybe being a little drunk but maybe not <laughs> at in the dorm room or something just talking about a movie or a book or even a current event with another person or a group of people who were thoughtful and maybe even if they had strong opinions they weren't necessarily dogmatic exactly like they're willing to listen to other people's opinions and stuff like that mm-hmm. which is I always like to say um, one of the great higher order pleasures in life is talking to another intelligent person on an interesting subject. (laughs) And it's hard to pin down exactly how to do it well, but it's kind of like you know it when you see it or you know it when you hear it. So if that's what you're hoping for, dear listener, I guess tune out now. (laughs) No, just jokes. Yeah, that's a good segue into, yeah, on Full Spectrum Cinema, uh, Tuesdays at 3 o'clock on... Kootenai Co-op Radio, C-J-L-Y-N. Did I get that right? C-J-L-Y, 93.5 Oh, no, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> the N just sounds good. C-J-L-Y, 93.5. So if you're in the Nelson area, tune in. But in that go. show, we pick one film and discuss it for the hour. Mm-hmm. And today's a little different because as regular listeners of this podcast will know, whenever I have a guest on or guests, I invite them on to talk about one of, if not the number one favorite thing in their life, what people pursue in their free time kind of thing. Because I think that that's much more than asking someone what job they do. I'd like to know what do you do when you don't have obligations, (laughs) right? Because I think that's a much more interesting route into someone's personality and thoughts. Not to say that someone's job couldn't be that. For some people, it could be their job is one of their most favorite things. But anyway, <laughs> I wish <laughs> it seems, yeah, it seems more rare than likely. Mm-hmm. So today's episode, we're actually just talking about film in general and our love of film. And it's definitely a, a passion we both share. So I think I'll have more personally to contribute than potentially on other topics. But one of the things that's very clear from talking to you and the amount of f- films you watch in a week, yeah. <laughs> at the very <laughs> least, is that movie making and filmmaking is a passion of yours and perhaps your preferred art form. I want to know all about that today. So why don't you start by, this is like kind of the general question I ask everybody is like, what are your earliest memories and positive memories of movies and watching movies? And and why have they stayed with you? Do you think? Okay. Well, my, the earliest one that I can remember, and I'm not even sure if I can remember it accurately, but that would be seeing the Lion King in the theater. Again, I'm not 100% sure that I actually did see The Lion King in the theater, but I do <laughs> it, I do have memories of that and of just that feeling coming out of it of like almost being in awe sort of. And and that is a movie that I think holds up and is fantastic to this day and probably showed it to my kids 3 or 4 times. Um that's the the very first memory that I have of being sort of blown away by a film. After that, I mean, I know I always was was interested in films. Another one that really sticks out for me is seeing The Return of the King mm. in the theater. And I think that I was probably maybe 12 when that happened. Yeah, Return of the King was uh, came out in 2003. So however old you were in 2003. Okay, yeah, 13. And uh, yeah, that was similarly, like, I just remember the credits rolling on the screen and just feeling like something had changed in me in some way or like just feeling a physical sort of sensation of excitement and and also just being you know very moved by that film so those are some early memories of seeing things in the theater i think that 
uh, for me, one of the filmmakers that really got me into film in a deeper way, though, than just because I think that that's an interesting thing about film is just about everybody likes movies to some degree. But when I stumbled across Stanley Kubrick's films, I think the first one was The Shining because I wanted to see anything I wasn't supposed to see like most kids. So I so I stumbled across The Shining and that movie scared the pants off me, whereas most horror films didn't and don't to this day but that one really got under my skin and it gave me nightmares I could really see that there was something going on there that was more than just gore and and horror so that kind of led me down a track of searching out as many of his films as I could at Rio's videos the video store in in Nelson which is still around it's been revived what would you say a municipal treasure (laughs) Right. Totally. <laughs> it's yeah, just a it is. growing up it was there and it's somehow still there and it's just it's such a it's such a Nelson thing, hey? Yeah. And it's so comforting to me that it is still there, even if I don't use it as often as I'd like to. Uh, but they had this sort of director's room where they had films grouped by directors and I remember that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was cool. That was such a neat thing that video stores could offer back in the day of this sort of active curation where they which is something that I means a lot to me now but that was kind of my earliest contact with curation in film was the director's room in Rio's and so I saw the Stanley Kubrick films and worked my way through those and I think that uh, I remember seeing 2001 and not really liking it all that much I found it a little difficult to sit through at the time I didn't understand it, but I knew that there were things to understand, even if I couldn't understand all of it. So it was my first my first experience of going and tracking down materials and, and essays to sort of understand what I had watched. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. I think also, there's probably some other kids who felt like this, but movies in my household were a little bit of a treat, because we didn't have cable for one thing. I know that that's not the exact same thing. But so like television wasn't really a thing in my family. We were allowed to watch Walt Disney on Sunday nights. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we only had two channels. We had like CBC and Global when we were kids. So television wasn't really a thing in my house. And we had about maybe 12 to 15 movies and like 10 of them were Disney films. So growing up, I could quote every line from like Robin Hood, the Disney Robin Hood, Peter Pan, Aladdin, uh, the Rescuers Down Under was another one we had. My dad still gets a kick out of "No More Mr. Nasca." <laughs> <laughs> so, like those Disney films were part of my um, introduction to film. But as I've talked about, actually, on a whole other podcast because we've done a whole I've done a whole episode on Star Wars. Um, the first movie I ever remember watching is A New Hope uh, on VHS when I was about six and just thinking, wow, I need to get a lightsaber or a a flashlight. (laughs) I didn't really comprehend the idea of a lightsaber. So I just was like, I need a flashlight like that. And just blown away by how exciting Star Wars was. And obviously it's carried over throughout. We don't need to go into too much detail of the newer films. (laughs) Sure. Uh, they're in that same category as Avengers, perhaps. <laughs> I, I haven't seen the last one, The Rise of Skywalker. Is that what it's called? Uh, you know what? Unfortunately, I mean, maybe we can talk about this another time. The The newest trilogy, I think it's called the sequel trilogy. To me, the biggest thing it suffers from is bad writing. Uh-huh. So it actually suffers from a very technical deficiency, not a kind of like visceral one. 
And it's too bad because that is kind of something that the people who make those movies should, in theory, have the most control over. Mm. And they still botched it, in my opinion. But that's neither here nor there. <laughs> we okay. can talk about that some other time. Uh, so yeah, like these movies allowed, being allowed to watch movies as a kid was such a treat for me. So I think I, I don't know exactly, but like, I feel like I maybe cherished the opportunity to watch movies a bit more than other kids I knew mm. because they were just allowed to whenever. Whereas I had to really do something good <laughs> to be allowed to watch a movie kind of thing because even even though you and I didn't grow up in the era of screens we kind of did and my parents didn't want us to spend too much time in front of the tv so I grew up really treasuring the opportunity to watch a movie and so I think that that is also baked into why I love them so much is that it felt like a really deserved reward even when it happened and then of course when you're a kid, it's just like the adventures of these really great animated movies. Uh, even like some of the DreamWorks ones were so good as well. Mm. So I know you mentioned a couple, but like other than Lion King, Lord of the Rings, and um, Kubrick's, even though those are all great. I mean, I love Stanley Kubrick movies as well. Mm. What were some other like really formative movies for you and why? All right, so there's a number. One of them, the next one I'm going to mention, I am actually hoping to to cover this on Full Spectrum Cinema sometime in the near future, so I won't go into too much depth, but um, have you ever seen Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia? I have seen that movie, yes. (laughs) So that is probably, that's a top three movie for me, uh, um, in my top three of all time, and I think it is because of the age I was and how I discovered it and uh, I don't again I don't actually know how old I was I know I was young though somewhere you know before the age of 15 and I don't know why I was drawn to rent that movie but I did I sat there for one thing I I don't think I had seen too many movies that were like two hours and 45 minutes where nobody that I'm aware of gets shot um, (laughs) or it's not a titillating film but I was just completely glued to the screen it was so emotionally intense that I felt like shaken when I had finished that I almost felt like the emotions that were going on in that film were so adult and so grown up that I that I didn't know totally how to process them and how to handle it but it was amazing to me that a movie could make me feel something as deeply as as that film did Mm -hmm. to me that film it's like having your like my heart ripped open (laughs) it's just it's so emotionally raw i think that that if we're going if if i was to make sort of general statements about film versus different art forms i mean they they all can do many of the same things but for me film is such an emotional medium Mm. you know and and that's that's one of the reasons why I connect with it as much as I do Uh, there's certainly novels that that can hit me on that level but whereas like certain writers you go to their work and I feel like it's like a one of those blocks to sharpen knives on for your for your intellect you know it 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 really like certain books that I've read, like Moby Dick, for instance, I feel like it's making me smarter as I'm reading it. And for me, some filmmakers like Paul Thomas Anderson, when I'm watching Magnolia, I feel like it's teaching me how to feel emotionally in a way that that I don't really get the chance to that often in day to day life. Yeah, 
Oh, that's cool. Something I would talk about a lot on my other podcast, Really True, fi- really true, fri- <laughs> really true Friction. <laughs> that's when we weren't getting along. <laughs> really True Fiction is how every medium of storytelling has its different strengths and weaknesses or different areas of emphasis, maybe, that it can do really well. Obviously, in literature, you get the benefit of something like omniscient narration, right? Like, you can get into the head of a character, or if it's third person, you could get into the heads of every character kind of thing. Whereas in movies, um, unless you're going to do voiceover, which is not easy to do well, you don't get that kind of omniscient narration. You have to kind of depend on a more observing kind of storytelling. But what movies can do really well is uh, visuals, obviously, right? And just seeing different shots and cinematography. So yeah, I totally understand um, that feeling of like, being taught a new feeling almost mm-hmm. right and and how to feel and magnolia is a, a great answer for that um any other ones that come to mind so i said stanley kubrick paul thomas anderson the cohen brothers they were mm. a big one for me and yeah and me Rumi. too yeah they're sort of offbeat sensibility so that they've been consistent big part of my film life and then to take things up to more currently because I although I've always been into film I've mentioned to you before how I watch sort of an unhealthy um, amount of films Mm. these days and that's been going on since I um, discovered the Criterion Collection and that was when they launched their streaming service the Criterion Channel oh okay and that happened I believe in 2018 hmm are they a company or? Yeah, they are. They are a. They sort of invented this model of like boutique DVD and Blu-ray releasing. Although they actually were around back in the days of Laserdisc too, but mm. they never did VHS. And um, Janus Films, they are a distribution company. So Janus Films will buy the rights to films, and then the Criterion Collection will put them out for home video in very deluxe, beautiful editions with lots lots of special features. Mm. And they're sort of known for being like film school in a box. That's kind of the idea. Right. And so they have put out a good percentage of what many would consider the canon of great films going back from the silent era to modern filmmaking mm. with a big emphasis on world cinema. They they have started to put out more American films in the last like five or six years, but a lot of Japanese stuff, a lot of French stuff, oh, cool. Italian. And so anyways, when they launched their streaming service in 2018, I was a charter subscriber. So I subscribed before it was actually available. Mm. And it opened up a whole new door into film for me. And I realized I realized how much more there was to discover because I did I had seen some black and white stuff and I was always really into seventies cinema, especially sort of seventies genre stuff. But I hadn't gone back much further than that. I'd seen some Hitchcock and, and things like that. So when I started watching that and realizing that I could enjoy these films, that really was like a light bulb went off in my head. And then I discovered this list called the Sight and Sound 250 Greatest Films of All Time. Mm. Sight and Sound is a British magazine publication. And they've been, I think it's the longest running film publication outside of France. So they've been doing it, I think, since the 40s. Wow. Yeah. 
and every decade they put out their 100 greatest films of all time and they basically are talking to a whole bunch of different critics and filmmakers to compile this list and anyways it's been expanded to 250 but it is kind of known as the the go-to list for trying to ascertain what are the the great films Mm. so i about Probably 70% of those are in the Criterion collection. and oh, we're so streaming. you've seen a lot of them? I've seen all of them. Oh, yeah. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but when I, when I realized that I could tackle most of this list with this one streaming service, I set out on this. Mm. Give on, yourself a challenge? Yeah, exactly, on this challenge to watch all of them. And I did that over the course of like a year. Or, well, maybe less than that. Uh, actually, I should be... I should be honest. I think there's about five that I haven't seen. Hmm. Some of them are very difficult to track down. Uh, well, the scrupulous listeners of the liberal soul appreciate your honesty, <laughs> Alex. I had to come clean on that. <laughs> you know, I haven't seen um, Andy Warhol's Chelsea Girls yet. And I, I don't think I ever will. Hmm. Uh, because I don't think I ever need to see an Andy Warhol film, personally. <laughs> um, right. Anyways long story, but I watched through that list and I would say that that was kind of a life-changing experience for me. It opened up all new possibilities. Mm. And so since then, I've been watching, you know, one to two, well, probably about 12 films a week. And I've been really trying to work my way through film history and read and learn as much as I can in the process of doing that. Yeah, that's great. And I think that that's an interesting, like my kind of formulative feeling about film might be a good segue too, because I think you were involved in this and that something we've talked about on the radio show is that uh, in grade 11, I took drama, film and television at LVR Rogers, the high school here in Nelson with Mr. Burns. And that really was my eye-opening introduction to film as more than entertainment, Um, Obviously, I had been entertained by movies, but with a good teacher and a thoughtful kind of like guide and mentor through, I even learned about things as simple as like actors hitting their mark and how if you're on film, uh, it's really easy to overact. So like everything is magnified on film versus real life. And then writing, storytelling, how are you going to get your shots? How did they get the shot in this movie? What do you think about that? And it's like, I hadn't even, these are just consciousness raising questions because I had never thought about, yeah, how do they get that rising shot? Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I guess a helicopter, that makes sense. But it's like, but that that doesn't look like they used a helicopter in that, but like they turned the camera around. How do they do that? And that becomes kind of interesting, right? It's like, oh yeah, that, that took somebody's vision. And once you kind of start to peel back the layers of cinematography and like setting and mood and tone and editing, you're just getting into this like cornucopia of different ways to make a movie and different emotions to manipulate like any other art form. Mm-hmm. And so when did that start happening for you? Like that feeling of the blossoming of understanding that that finished product you see. And I feel this way about music too, right? Like we get the finished version, the, the, the finished product of a song on the radio or wherever. And what you don't see are the hours and hours of the people practicing and getting the sound engineering right, et cetera, right? So for some people, that can be kind of like overwhelming. But for other people, I think it's right, like exciting. Yeah. And I remember feeling quite excited in both grade 11 and 12, I took drama, film, and television. Mm. So maybe that was when that started happening for you. But tell me about a little bit about how you started feeling the blossoming of learning more about film. 
I think for me, it was when I discovered film podcasts, which was probably 15 years ago. <laughs> wow, you're a real early adopter. I, I was, yeah. I, I was listening to podcasts before they were cool. and uh, Probably before they were even hosted anywhere. Like, you'd have to f- really look for, like, local files embedded somewhere in a website, maybe, I guess. Yeah, that's what you had to do. Yeah. And and when you uh, told people that you were listening to a podcast, they didn't know what it was, and you got to explain it to them, that sort of thing. And uh, Battleship Retention, that's, that's the first podcast that I started listening to, and I still listen to it to this day. It's a great podcast. But yeah, that was when I first encountered people who were close to my age, really seriously engaging with film. And I realized that this was sort of the sort of person I was. I, I, I wouldn't have described myself as like a film nerd up until then, because I didn't really know what that was. And so I learned a lot just from listening to them talk about how movies are put together and shots are composed and all of the elements that you, you know, s- spoke to. And it is interesting because, you know, if when a movie or any work of art really, but we're talking about movies. So when a movie is well done, you shouldn't notice any of those things because they've woven this tapestry and, you know, like you're only, you're only really going to notice like a score to a movie if it's out of place or if it's not, well, I mean, we would now, but, but I think for, mm. for many people, it's just part of the experience, you right. know, unless somebody's trying to be really flashy, which can happen. But yeah, I started to pay attention to how things were constructed. And for me, that doesn't, it doesn't take the fun out of it. It doesn't take the magic out of, out of films. I mean, I think it, it can sometimes if you go too deep, you know, there's certain films where I don't necessarily want to know a whole lot about the production history and how it was made because they're just too special to me. <laughs> you know, I think Magnolia might be one sure. of those films where... Don't need anything behind the scenes? Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I just want to enjoy it as a film. It was film podcast that really kind of opened my eyes to film as an art form. I do remember taking that that class that you mentioned, and I did really enjoy it. But I don't think it was as um, maybe as formative for me uh, with regards to how I watch films. Mm. And we talked about this because the very first movie we did together on full spectrum cinema was Memento. And that was one of the movies that I was introduced to by this teacher and in that class. And it was like three years after Memento had come out. And similar to that feeling of that you mentioned with Magnolia, I think it was at the end of Memento. Oh, no, no, I think you said 2001, maybe. But it's like at the end of Memento, I, I was struck with this feeling of like, I know I just watched a great movie and I don't totally know why yet. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like even when maybe that's part of the definition of a great movie is that it leaves you thinking about it when it's done. And maybe you don't actually totally get all of it. And actually, probably the best movie of all time for that uh, feeling is 2001 Space Odyssey, because I have very friendly sparrings with some of my friends who just flat out think that movie's boring, Mm. which is a very, I think, at the surface, a fair criticism. I think it's 2001 is a great example of a movie that once you actually, I think, learn a little bit more about movies, it becomes better, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Because it is kind of this 
weird, standoffish, slow-paced, heady thinker with a terrifying villain <laughs> that oh, is yeah. cold and calculated. And so, yeah, I about five years ago, I watched 2001 A Space Odyssey again after maybe 10 years, and I liked it way more mm. the second time I'd watched it. And it's because I'd had that decade in the interim of like, thinking about movies and having so much more context, yeah. you know, like I, I feel quite grateful that we're like at an age now where both through just time as well as proclivity, we watch a lot of movies. So every new movie I watch has so many other movies for me to kind of contextualize it with and think about it and be like, okay, even though, you know, I don't want to destroy a movie by comparing it. There are similar movies where it's like, oh, they did this better here, but maybe better here. And like, that's an interesting thing. Like, I wonder what they were thinking. I wonder if that difference was on purpose or on accident. Mm. I have come to find a lot of things that I don't like about movies are almost all around feeling like there was a lack of self-awareness of a person making the movie, um, a kind of like lack of self-irony uh, or knowing of what they're doing. So, as you know, I do uh, also a horror movie podcast. And some of the, the horror movies I like the least are generally the ones that don't seem to be in on their own joke if they're kind of crappy. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I love Nightmare on Elm Street because I think Nightmare on Elm Street is a film that is 100% tongue-in-cheek and Wes Craven knew exactly the kind of movie he was making and he was in on his own joke, let's say. The tone and the mood. But there are other slashers we've done like Friday the 13th, where I'm like, I don't think the director knew that they were making such a bad movie. <laughs> sure. <laughs> that kind of thing, right? So that's a bit of a tangent, but like that's just an example of an, an, a more developed palette, maybe, about how I think about writing, mm. even in a movie, and, and direction. So, yeah, how do you think... You, maybe this is the question in all of this. I'm not very good at that. I'm still learning. What are some of the major differences in how you think about movies now versus five years ago versus 10 years ago. Okay. I'll, I'll say first off that my taste in movies has shifted dramatically over that time. I think, say, 10 years ago, I just wanted... I wanted something with a lot of razzle-dazzle. I wanted something that looked great. I wanted great production values, big budgets, all that sort of thing. And I feel like as we've got more into the 21st century all those things about movies have started to grate on me a lot i mean i still love a, a great you know 250 million dollar mind-blowing sort of blockbuster movie when it's really well done mm -hmm. which is pretty occasional thing <laughs> in my opinion the even there's no even though there's no sun out today i see some shade over there <laughs> The, the sort of onslaught of digital imagery and just really loud movies and it's it's grown kind of tiresome to me. So I tend to be more drawn to quieter films, more introspective films. And those, I mean, even like 2001 is kind of an introspective film with a lot of quiet moments. And so that, I mean, I think... That is for sure. Yeah. So Kubrick... <laughs> He was one of those masters that could sort of have his foot in both worlds of an art movie and a really entertaining sort of mainstream film that was going to be financially successful. And I love it when someone can can do both. 
but again, it takes a really strong filmmaker to do that. In terms of how I, I mean, I've also just seen so many more films now, so I don't, I think that it's probably a little bit more difficult for me to be impressed with with a film, I mean, I can still enjoy it. Once you go back and you've seen films from the 20s and 30s and you realize that so many of the plots that we are watching today have been basically been recycled for a hundred years now. Well, and to be totally honest, those plots have been recycled for hundreds of years. Yes. And then those plots have been recycled for probably thousands of years if you get like really low resolution mythical in the storytelling. Yeah, exactly. The stories get get told over and over again. But I mean, in, it, with film, it's not just the plots, but they really are kind of recycling properties a lot of the time. And so some of these movies, like y- you can see really well-made gangster films from the 1930s. Mm. I think those are just called current events. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what they were called then. But um, you could make just a great, straightforward gangster film today, mm-hmm. and it could be really entertaining. I could go and watch it, and I could say, that was great, I really enjoyed it, but it hasn't really brought anything new to the table that we haven't seen since the 1930s. Right. So so that's, I guess, a, a notable difference, you know? Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, I had a conversation with somebody at a wedding, that's not relevant. It's just factual. And we were talking about, I had, I was about a month away from launching Really True Fiction. So kind of inevitably, I threw that, but also just my own predilections. I was talking about movies and books. And I was remember talking to this guy and having a really inter- interesting conversation where I realized one of the things that I am in kind of a trough with with modern movies and modern movie making is that it feels like the ratio from original screenplays to adaptations are so much more skewed to the adaptation side now. And maybe it's always been like that. And I'm just coming late to the party of like, where are the original movies? But this is why I think I find myself so drawn to directors like the Coen brothers, even though obviously they have made a few adaptations of their own. Mm. Um, To me, their strongest films are their originals as well as Quentin Tarantino. Even my favorite horror movies that we've done are you know, written and directed by kind of auteur-style horror. Mm. I don't know. I guess just that's a, a, a comment to lay out. Like, what, what do you, What's your kind of, I guess, intuition around original screenplays versus adaptations? There are, to, to me, I kind of think about it like this. Actually, it's like you can make a cover song that's better than the original. To me, All Along the Watchtower is done better by Jimi Hendrix than by Bob Dylan, even though that wasn't the order of writing, right? Mm. But that's that's the exception, not the rule. Very ri- there, there are some movies that come very close, I think, to being as good or better than their adaptations, but they're not the norm. But with a movie, it's a completely brand new, like an original screenplay movie. My feeling is like, this is this is the original brainchild manifested. And it's not as easy to do as if you're adapting a book or something like that. So obviously, I've given away my bias there. But what, what are your thoughts on the difference between original screenplays and adaptations? Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question. I am also drawn to writer-directors, because I think um, someone like who's not 
he's not a favorite filmmaker of mine by any means, but Brian De Palma. I was watching some interviews with him recently, and he talks about how he is a visual thinker first. So he writes his screenplays around the set pieces. And then he doesn't have to pick up somebody else's script and say, okay, how am, how am I going to make this look cool? How am I? Because as you said, it is a visual medium first. And so if you're going to take a great novel, and again, if someone's going to adapt something, I would almost rather them take like an unsuccessful novel <laughs> or something that didn't do well okay. so that you have room to make it right. its own thing and make it something good. Whereas if you're going to take a great novel and then adapt it to film, your chances of doing it justice are slim and they usually don't don't work out. Um, I think that when somebody's a writer and director, they have they have the film in mind first. And also then you're just getting a I would say a more pure vision. Uh, you know, I think a lot of the films that work really good, they have a very clear vision film is not it's it's more of a collective medium you know it it, you do have to have a lot of people working on a film but then also the way that it gets financed there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen and so I think a lot of films get ruined because you're not letting that that vision be executed the way that it should be I do think it's interesting though what you were saying about Tarantino because actually my favorite film of his is an adaptation, which is um, Jackie Brown, (laughs) which is an adaptation of an Elmore Leonard novel. Right. Um, But so maybe there are so many exceptions to these rules. I've made a mistake. (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, overall, he he does write great original screenplays. I think that some of his films can be a little too Tarantino-y. They're they're a little (laughs) bit self-indulgent. But I think with um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I think he he has done his best work since his first three films. So I also think that um, short stories can be good for adaptation to film because then you're actually expanding upon something rather than, I mean, so many, so many films, which are an adaptation of a novel, they bug me because you just see that so much has been left out. They have to chop things out they have to whittle it down to get it into that two-hour runtime. Or I mean, that, it seems like more and more movies run to three hours these days. But you're cutting a lot of things out, and it just feels incomplete. And you know, if you've read the source material, a lot of people are tend to be unsatisfied. There, there's definitely exceptions, though, as you as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Lord of the Rings is maybe a prime example of things kept out of the movies. I mean, those movies are already so long and there are tons of characters who are in the books yeah. who are not in the movies. And um, now obviously some of that for Lord of the Rings specifically is like when they're leaving the Shire, it takes like four months in the book, right? They like move to the edge of the Shire and then just wait. Well, actually it's way more exciting to film them jumping on a ferry, escaping the Nazgul, right? Like that kind of stuff makes sense in an adaptation. Yeah. And again, I love the Lord of the Rings movies. They're, they're maybe some of the best adaptations of a book I've ever seen because of how well the visuals were done and, and how good the characters did come to life. But uh, I mean, I think the Lord of the Rings movies 
well, we did talk about them on Really True Fiction, so they have deserved their own podcasts. Sure. <laughs> Would, wouldn't you, lo- I would absolutely love to see the return of the king with the ending from the novel, which is just such a downer. Yeah. Um, you know, when, when they go back to the Shire and everyone's enslaved, I would love to see that kind of alternate ending. I also love the Lord of the Rings movies. I do think that they're very different from the books. Mm-hmm. I think that that most of the film adaptations that do work well stray far from the source material mm-hmm. because uh like they're just different mediums. So sometimes trying to do a really faithful adaptation can wreck it. I know that's a lot of um people's complaint with the Watchmen yeah. film even though the ending is not yeah but, but the rest of it is the rest of it he just tried to do such a faithful adaptation of that graphic mm. novel so i kind of like the watchman movie but i think that i didn't have a strong opinion about the graphic novel before mm-hmm. so maybe that made it like i'm a more of a fair weather fan going in in the first place i also like the movie and i went back and and read the the graphic novel after i'd seen the movie mm. If I was going to make a complaint, it would be more with V for Vendetta, which mm. I don't know if you've read that graphic novel. No, I haven't read the, the graphic novel. It's but. phenomenal. Mm. It's just so much better than, than the film, in my opinion. Alas. <laughs> <laughs> because they're more, I, to, they just seem to be becoming more rare, I feel like original screenplay films I really treasure because you're right, I'm not comparing the visual world being presented to me to the source material of my own imagination. And no movie can ever be as um, as expansive as your imagination is when you're reading a book, and even a comic book. It's mm. hard to replicate that. So that's why I've really... Recent examples would be um, the three films that were written by... Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Taylor Sheridan. He wrote um, Sicario, Hell or High Water, and Wind River. Yeah, I've seen so those. So those are three awesome movies that are all original screenplays i think don't quote me on that but i'm pretty sure that they are that he wrote that he wrote those right yes yeah that's his trilogy and that's so interesting because it's like the it's like the screenwriter as the auteur kind of mm-hmm. he his voice can be seen in all of those films done by those different directors yeah so when it's an ori- when it's an original screenplay and a great script i'm i don't know i'm just feeling like i'm uh, observing the pinnacle of the medium mm-hmm. kind of thing even the silliness of the original trilogy of star wars right like again this is a nerd out that would be its own other podcast in fact it has been but i would say if i had to find the most fundamental problem with the star wars universe is that it wasn't created as intended to be a universe Mm. Right. It wasn't George Lucas didn't make the first three movies thinking, I can't wait for them to make the next 20 movies that expand this lore. Maybe he was. It seems unlikely because of how tight, tightly written the movie was. And of course, one of the hilarious slash annoying things about the subsequent films is how much of the plot of the original trilogy looks just absurd if not downright stupid now in some of the ways that characters relate to each other based on what we learn about them in the canon later on so i'll get off my star wars soapbox there but i'm just saying like the original trilogy of star wars i think one of the reasons that it was so beloved is that it is brand new it's its own new thing i mean obviously george lucas was um inspired by like kurosawa films and flash gordon television series that kind of like there's obviously influences but that's different than just 
adapting a, an existing story that was for its own characters and its own experience. Yeah. Right? So I think maybe I'm just working through my own <laughs> feelings on this, but it's like I, I'm just, I, I feel so drawn to a brand new. There are times I hear a cover song and I'm like, oh yeah, that's a great cover. But there's no feeling in music I ever feel for the first time I hear a really good song. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is a brand new thing in the world that was never here until somebody manifested it through their own imagination. Yeah. Well, and that's, it's it's such a problem in the film industry because it's not just um, adaptations of stories, but because it's such an expensive medium, more and more what you see is that they always want to sort of green light projects that have name recognition. So even if it's original screenplay, but it's the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, or it's, you know, umpteen examples, but more and more what you see is that... Detective Pikachu. Yeah, Detective Pikachu, exactly, or or even like the Emoji movie. They want to have this kind of name recognition because then they have a sort of guaranteed audience off the bat. I mean, you can look at the most expensive films that are made every year, and I, and it goes back to the 80s. Every year, more and more of them are sequels, um, franchises. And so it's ironic in a way that what you're saying about Star Wars and what it meant to you, and now it's exactly that. It's a, it's a franchise with name, name recognition, and, you know, you can chuck something out there, and if it's got Star Wars on it, they know that a certain percentage of people are going to go see it. It will make money. It'll make money. And the performance of a film at the box office doesn't always have to do with how good it is or even how much people liked it, because a lot of people are just going to see films because it's something that they know. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I don't want to be... I certainly don't intend to be judgmental on that element of like film as comfort. I can totally see like you throw on, um, even though it's a movie that I could never relate to, if your, you know, comfort film is Bridget Jones's diary or something like that, like more power to you. Like that's, that's not my critique of, uh, quote unquote bad films as much as, um, just because when you love a, a, um, a medium or an art form, you love to see it done well. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I'm, I can be very judgmental. <laughs> like, I, my, my <laughs> wife would be happy to tell anybody. But um, mostly, it's just of bad films. I mean, any yeah. kind of film can be great. Like, I love the film Clueless. Mm. Um, I think that's like comfort food to me. Right. Um, and I could, I could be in a bad mood and throw Clueless on. And but, yeah, but is that, it's been a long time since I've seen Clueless. But isn't Clueless um, a, a smart movie about dumb people? That's that's a great description. That's yeah. that's the general. So whenever I'm thinking about it, what's the 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 joke I've heard that's actually kind of insightful is what's the difference between the Big Bang Theory and Arrested Development? The Big Bang Theory is a dumb show about smart people, and Arrested Development is a smart show about dumb people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that that's totally clueless, and it is kind of a a movie. I I don't know that I I would call it a deep movie necessarily, Mm -hmm. but it's about very superficial characters, but it's actually, it's a movie that has a lot of heart and a lot of warmth. Sure. Maybe judgmental isn't the right word exactly Mm -hmm. in that. Yeah. If people find comfort in certain films that I don't like, I don't judge that. Yeah. But I do definitely find myself being kind of, um, 
I guess hard nosed maybe is the right way when it comes to the the kind of mechanics of filmmaking. Like yeah. there are movies that I can kind of like and still say that they did not do good camera work there. Right. Yeah. And for me, actually, the number one variable here is storytelling. So because characters and storytelling has kind of always been subconsciously my favorite part about books and movies, whatever, I've become a lot more stern around sloppy storytelling. There's a reason why Chekhov's gun is a thing. You need things early in your narrative for a different reason so that they're organically in the story later. This is actually something good horror movies do is that they'll have props. Good horror movies use props, especially around a house really well. So there's a reason why this particular baseball bat is in the house, not just gratuitously there kind of thing or something like that, right? I'm struggling for an example exactly off the top of my head, but good storytelling includes things early in your film, for example, that are paying off in a different way later in your film. So you don't just need to ex machina them in or 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 exposition your way out of a situation right Mm -hmm. and um so that's kind of what i find myself more critical around especially is um sloppy storytelling and just sloppy writing yeah well i mean i the marvel cinematic universe is something that i've i've become pretty cranky about and a lot of the reason for me why is just because a lot of people who i encounter in day-to-day life but who I, I, not necessarily my friends, they know that I'm a film person. So it's like, hey, did you see the new Marvel film? No, I don't really like, like, it's always, the conversation is always about that. It's, it so dominates the film landscape in terms of what people are seeing who are only going, who are only seeing so many number of films a year. So if it wasn't for that, I would be like, fine, you know, everyone just watch what they watch. But I think that there's so much more out there and that people would really enjoy it if they checked out other types of films. So sometimes... Perhaps uh, getting a good taste on full-spectrum cinema on Cooney Co-op Radio, 3 o'clock on Tuesdays. Exactly. I mean, I'm sure (laughs) that um, they might get some great recommendations there. (laughs) I would be remiss to not ask you of what your opinion on David Lynch is. Oh, I love him. Okay. <laughs> I'm a huge Lynch fan. I've seen everything he's ever done. Again, this is me coming clean, setting the record straight. I haven't seen season two of the original Twin Peaks series. Okay. The um, one that has like 20 episodes? Yes. Isn't it weird? Season one had like six. Yeah. Season two had like 20, 20. 20-something. And in my defense, I believe that he didn't direct all of those. I think he was, I think he may have been taken off somewhere in there. As a sidebar, the geographical setting of Twin Peaks is like around here, right? Like the way that they describe it, it's supposed to be in Washington state, but like just south of the border of here. Oh, okay. Like Nelway, Meadow Lane Falls area. Yeah. And it's just funny because there's nothing like the geography they explain in the show that is in that part of Washington State. So interesting. <laughs> just just a funny little tidbit for the nerds out there is that um, we live very close to the fictional geography of Twin Peaks. That's a, that's a fun fact for sure. So yeah, I love David Lynch. I love uh, Eraserhead, his first film. Actually, oh, I haven't seen Dune, too. That's one that's on my list, is to see his adaptation of Dune. He's such a interesting filmmaker, because 
he is different than Stanley than like 2001 where there's no essay that you're going to go to that's going to really describe what's going on in some of his films. I mean, with Mulholland Drive, you can make a certain amount of sense out of it. But when you get into um, Inland Empire, that's about as far out as a film can get. And it's probably my favorite. It is just completely horrific. It is so terrifying. (laughs) Um, and, And that runs through a lot of his films. He's an interesting character because he's almost like a a filmmaker by chance in a way. I don't know if you know a lot about his life outside of his films, but... I do not. He is a visual artist first, and so he he does art exhibits and stuff, and that's what he... He went to school, and he was completely, like, still is the kind of dedicated bohemian artist who lives what he calls the art life. There's um He has a documentary called... David Lynch, The Art Life. And uh, he kind of just, he started making short films and he came into a bit of money and was able to make a racer head. And he had designed the heck out of that film. And all of the the crazy stuff you're seeing, it was painted or built by him. So I think if he was never able to make a film again or a TV series, he would hardly bat an eye and he would just keep Mm. doing what he's doing. Which probably um, contributes to him being so good at it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. So he's a total maverick. And <laughs> but but that being said, he, him and John McCain. Sure. <laughs> uh, he lives in Hollywood. He's a Hollywood dude, and he's really into kind of Hollywood. I heard they named a road after his movie. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, well, that movie has a lot to do with hollywood history and some people it was a kind of um touchstone film cultural touchstone film wasn't it it was yeah and and there's a lot of people who think that it's a movie about marilyn monroe Mm. it's about the kind of hollywood dream which is both a dream and a nightmare and he kind of he has that balance well actually that's a good that's i like that point because it reminds me of one of my One of my favorite authors ever is David Foster Wallace, and I remember him talking on an interview once, I think it was with Charlie Rose, and they were talking about David Lynch, because I think it was just after Mulholland Drive had come out, and so they were, and and I think David, actually, I think David Foster Wallace had written an article about Lynch, maybe, something like this. He has, yeah. Yeah, and so he said what he finds so fascinating about Lynch is that for something to be Lynchian is the marriage of the macabre with the mundane, Mm. So the kind of grotesque with the everyday. Um, So I actually think Mulholland Drive has a great example of that. There's that early scene where they go behind the diner and there's like a monster, right? And it's kind of off-putting. It's not exactly horrific, but it's like jumpy a little bit. And it's like a weird looking monster that you see, even though it's supposed to be, I think eventually it's like a homeless person, right? Later it's shown to be something like that. I don't remember the scene exactly well. Um, Yeah, no, it's never explained that that... He's a full-on monster, and he shows up later in the film, too. Yeah, so it's just a monster uh, yeah. at a diner, right? The yeah. macabre and the mundane. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that's something that Twin Peaks, for sure, does amazingly. Like, obviously, the characters in Twin Peaks are so quirky, but they're kind of also just, like, in this run-of-the-mill Americana setting, like a hotel or a diner or, like, a small town, but with like horrific things happening and then kind of like maybe supernatural things happening that are gross, 
right? Yeah. And so I loved that kind of marriage of two opposites. To make two opposites work together well is really great imaginative artistry. Yeah. It's not just that it's mundane, but it's this kind of like suburban Americana. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's very American. And so he's making these movies that are just the most mind-melting kind of crazy things. And then there's the sense that everything's like as American as apple pie mm-hmm. because of the music that he's using and, and yeah, the often sort of suburban atmosphere. So, I mean, he's just such a one-of-a-kind person. And he's also a very, he meditates religiously. <laughs> but <laughs> although... <laughs> Good one, Alex. <laughs> yeah, although n- not strictly, I don't think... I. Th- I don't think it's part of any religion for him, but um, mm. he's very into meditation, and that's one of his big... He he gives talks about it and whatnot. Oh, cool. Um, that is a big source of his creativity and something that he, he talks about. A lot of his ideas come from dreams and meditation, and I do think that you can feel that when you watch his films. I think a lot of my favorite films could be seen as like a guided meditation Mm. film has the power to sort of pull you into this trance-like state which is very similar to meditation and there's some some of david lynch's sequences they they do that better than anything else i've seen Mm. um and i don't know i think his films you couldn't just analyze you could look at it and say here's what he's doing with music here's what he's doing with camera position and it wouldn't explain to me where his films get the power that they have from because i do think that he is tapping into something pretty deep Mm. yeah i agree i mean we've mentioned lots of great filmmakers today and they all kind of play a special role. Like, yeah, the Coen brothers are my favorite, but also I love David Fincher movies. But also Steven Soderbergh has made some pretty incredible films that I really enjoy. And not just the Oceans movies, but like both Contagion and Side Effects, I think are great. And obviously Lynch and Kubrick and Scorsese, I don't think we mentioned, but obviously he, he gets his own place there. But I think the name, maybe this is out of left field, but the director in the last decade or so that has surprised pleasantly surprised me the most with movies that kind of come out of nowhere that I love is Richard Linklater. That's so, so funny. What His name th- was in my head. Was that one? Yeah. yeah. So, sure. I love... It's funny that his probably his most commercial film is School of Rock because I do love rock and roll. And so there's there's a special place in that movie, but I could gush about him. I recently just watched Everybody Wants Some again, and I oh, yeah. love that film. The kind of like pseudo-documentary, real-life, fly-on-the-wall style of filmmaking is very enjoyable to me. Yeah, he has sort of different modes of, of films, I would say. Like, I, I think I originally encountered him through waking life oh yeah which is like a philosophy treatise on screen sure yeah there's a lot of philosophy and it is it's a very i i was really into like mind-bending kind of druggy sort of movies when i was younger and so he's got that and then slacker too i don't know if you've seen slacker his his uh debut but that is a great... I have not, no. <laughs> I have to remember, people can't hear me shake my head. <laughs> uh, well, it, so much of what he does is encapsulated in, in Slacker, because it's a lot of people walking and talking, which um, 
comes through. But then, yeah, he's got his his slice of life and his more humanistic films, which are probably the ones that I'm most drawn to. The Before Trilogy and then Boyhood. Boyhood is probably... Speaking of an achievement in filmmaking. Yeah. Because that movie was made over like 18 years, I think. 12. 12, yeah. right. Yeah, because he started as a... Not as a baby, but... Yeah. Yeah, I think... And it, it follows him from from 6 to 18. Yeah. yeah. I'm getting my math right there. Yeah, yeah you, know, you got um, it. Yeah, that that's probably... On Full Spectrum Cinema last year, we did our top 10 of the decade. And I think Boyhood, I put at number two for me Mm. um i think it's it's an amazing achievement and something that had never been attempted before sure and something that you could know nothing about the way it was made or sort of the gimmick that it that it was shot you know they shot for one week every year i believe for 12 years Mm. you don't need to know any of that and it's a perfect movie he's one of my favorite filmmakers because of his humanism for his love of humanity uh or you know not every not every one of us but i know well there's these movies that get made that are great that are like great little human tales i don't know the right term like kind of indie films there's a really good movie from a few years ago called this is where i leave you with jason bateman and uh, tina fey and um adam driver is in it and it's kind of like a family loses their father and they come together uh, Rose Byrne is in it too, or Crazy Stupid Love uh, with Steve Carell from about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. Now, there are these movies that are kind of of this genre, which are a slice of life, right? Like slice of life, family comedy, but not cheesy, exactly. Like they're definitely deeper than average for this. But even all those kind of movies, you can tell the shots are contrived, characters are kind of more, It's like it looks like a conventional film. But when I watch Linklater films, even films like Scanner Darkly, like I'm getting the sense that I'm more like that fly. Mm. Like I'm just around people talking, not watching a movie of people talking. Right? Like he he really create even Dazed and Confused, important dialogue, quote unquote important, because it's not like a super important movie exactly, but like things that are relevant to what's going on are said by characters who aren't on screen. You just have to listen, right? Mm. You're just around. Whereas in a more conventional film, that person might be centered in the shot. So that's what I mean. It kind of feels more like a home video style, but it's obviously scripted and obviously well-produced that I, I've never really kind of felt like any other director has mastered, let alone I could even say is like the, like Linklater in that way. Yeah, no, I think I think you said it well. And I, you know, you describe these other sort of indie slice of life films and you can tell when that's kind of a tone that someone's going for and that's very connected to like the Sundance Film Festival so you know you could say like oh yeah that seemed like they were going for a sort of a Sundance quirky comedy with Richard Linklater I think that his films come from a more organic process they they feel very organic and, and as I was saying before like there is a a vision there for them, mm-hmm. um, even if they tend to fall into different tropes. And I will say, I do think that that Dazed and Confused is actually quite a deep movie after watching it many, many times, mm-hmm. especially when you focus on on the second half and sort of the stu- the stuff that people are 
characters are struggling with, which is so funny because it's it's all because what does everyone remember from that movie? It's Matthew McConaughey. Yeah, Matthew McConaughey about high school girls, and it's a movie about people drinking and smoking weed and trying to get laid, basically. But he took that and and so. You know, you're you're gonna have to pay attention, but there's a lot going on there. So yeah, I, I I don't think anybody else does filmmaking quite like him. And then when you get into, um, I think it's his naturalism is sort of the word that I would describe with a lot of his films. And then when you get into the Before trilogy and Boyhood, that I would say is taken to kind of a new level where the way that those films are made is um, Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi were basically co-writers. They would sit down. They were so deeply in in those characters, and the whole writing process was collaborative. And then when they filmed it, there was room for improvisation and stuff as well. Mm-hmm. So it's very organic, and, and you can hear them talk about it. Movies don't get made like that. <laughs> like, no, they sure don't. And they don't, and he, and he just kind of like flouts tropes, which mm-hmm. I love. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, I think it was an Amazon original, but he made a movie a couple years ago called, I think it's called The Last Flag Flying. And it's Steve Carell, Lawrence Fishburne, and uh, Brian Cranston. And they're all Vietnam War vets. And Steve Carell's son, who is in the Iraq War, because I think it's set like 2003, 2004. Steve Carell's son dies in the Iraq War, and they have to transport his body. And I just remember this one scene sticking with me where they're like, taking the body away it's not going to be buried in the military cemetery they're going to take it to the hometown cemetery because for plot reasons but they're in like a truck and the truck gets pulled over and in a conventional movie it's like oh no our heroes have met another obstacle on their uh, journey to find success right <laughs> oh this is like movie making 101 yeah no, in a link later film it was a cler- clerical error and they're fine they're on their way again <laughs> right yeah, like, it's yeah. just like that kind of commitment to realism Mm -hmm. in his movies are so refreshing to me it's like no no you're fine yeah we just made a mistake in our whatever paper we filled out and you guys can go (laughs) yeah no i agree They're, they're so his films are so refreshing yeah i think a lot of these filmmakers that we've been talking about when you when you're looking back at the history of cinema and reading about the great filmmakers, it can be quite depressing because there, there's always this tension between commerce and art in films. And I didn't even know that... That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that films could be art or considered art until I was a teenager. Whereas, you know, painting or, or writing, we all grow up with the idea that this is art. But I think even now there's probably a lot of people who aren't familiar with thinking of films as an art form. But anyways... They will be after this episode. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Um, We're spreading the good word. You know, so that tension is so real, and the commercial aspect of it is big, because it's very expensive business. Um, Mm -hmm. Someone has to put up a bunch of money for the most low-budget of films. It's still a lot of money. Often... You're hearing about these artists and they are spending their career struggling to try to get their films made. I mean, I think even, um, I don't know if you know Alexander Payne, he did Sideways and okay. Election was a film he did, mm. Nebraska from from a oh, few yeah. years ago. I remember Nebraska, that's a great movie. So good. And, you know, he's just such a great filmmaker, but he just talks about the struggle and how hard it is to get films made and 
you know, you're not allowed to just be an artist. You have to be a fundraiser and you have to be a businessman and all Mm. of this stuff to be a director. So when these people do manage to, in some ways, I'm just so amazed that we have these great filmmakers and these great films that we we have. I try not to sort of, the word is slipping my mind, but I try not to put them up on a pedestal too much Mm. because when it comes to the film... Don't worship them. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know a few years down the road, you could find out terrible things about them that it True. happens all the time, yeah. especially in the film industry. But I'm so, I'm so, especially appre- about Kubrick. <laughs> yeah. Well, or Hitchcock or, yeah. yeah. Uh, but, you know, I do think it's amazing the, the legacy that we have with so many great films and so many great filmmakers who have managed to put out what I would consider to be, some of the greatest works of art of all time. Mm. Yeah, agreed. Uh, in the spirit of that, though, have you ever made a film or ever wanted to or want to? Uh, I never have, unless we're talking about me like filming my kids on my iPhone. Mm. <laughs> That's about <laughs> as close as I've gotten. <laughs> I've thought about that. I don't know. I don't see myself... Um, making a film anytime too soon i would i would have loved to go to film school i would love to be in that industry in some way probably not going to happen in this area where where we're living but um in terms of being a director probably not i mean it just sounds like it just sounds like a lot of work (laughs) and i sure what about writing a script then yeah that i could see myself doing that I could see myself doing for sure. Oh, well, that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? Maybe. I think my natural inclination would be if I was going to write any work of fiction, it would probably be a book more than a movie mm. because I think I would know how to do that better. But maybe that's just because I have this like foolish sense of myself that I know English better than I know film writing. <laughs> Right? Like, I I can delve the language better than necessarily conceiving of, like, a story visually. Yeah. But who knows? They maybe are a very closely related process. But the truth is, even though I love fiction a lot, it's one of my favorite things. I think I'm actually more talented at nonfiction things. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually left to my own devices. I, I, gra- I gravitate towards things like philosophy and psychology more than writing down like I'm always imagining writing an essay let's say about something like a philosophy of language kind of thing and and like that kind of stuff can translate but no I don't I don't I don't see myself ever writing a movie but that's okay because I can still appreciate them quite deeply yeah I think it's so fascinating like Tarantino's career where he was a guy working at a movie store yeah, and he yeah, wrote yeah. true romance yeah. and sold that and tony scott made it and then he i mean he clearly is in- incredibly talented at writing screenplays but he was just a kid basically right. yeah, yeah. and then he wrote reservoir dogs his famous script which going back to that that class in high school mr burns said that he thought that was <laughs> one of the be- greatest yeah. screenplays ever written so. yeah for sure speaking of tony scott too i i just brought up the movie unstoppable yesterday with a friend so i loved tony scott movies they're they're exciting i've heard great things about unstoppable now i've ne- never seen it 
I mean, it's it's a very entertaining action movie. Sure. It's not super deep, but it's very, very interesting to watch while it's happening. It's a runaway train. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> yeah, Tarantino put that, I think, as his third favorite film of the decade. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, it's a beautifully made movie, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's classic Tony Scott action. Yeah. Uh, with just the right amount of quick-paced editing, but not too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you're not overwhelmed by it. So I only have a little bit left. One of the things that I was thinking about in this is how have movies made me think differently about the world? And I think they've actually done it quite literally. For example, with novels, people who study this kind of thing think that novels greatly contributed to empathy, right? Especially like Dickens is a prime example of there just hadn't been humanization characters of the poor and the the really taken advantage of people in the factories in England in that era, right? And Dickens was able to humanize a lot of these people to make them relatable or at least like recognizable to the people who read Dickens, which weren't necessarily the factory workers, right? But more high upper class people in England. And like translating that to film, I am pretty convinced that the Eiffel Tower exists, but I've never been to Paris, right? Mm-hmm. But I see it all the time in movies or the pyramids or like obviously big structures, but even just small towns in other countries and then even foreign films. Like movies have been the number one reason that I have visualized the planet, right? Not just movies, obviously documentaries, planet Earth, more intentional educational stuff as well. So this is a long-winded preamble to like, how do you think movies have shaped or changed the way you think about the world and yourself in it? Well, I mean, a lot of the things that you mentioned, and it's interesting what you said about um, empathy with, with literature and Dickens, because Roger Ebert, one of his famous quotes is that he saw f- film as like a ma- as like a machine for generating empathy. And I think that it has certainly done that for me. Just watch Slumdog Millionaire, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Yeah, as you said, experiencing other parts of the planet. And of course, you know, you can travel and and that is very valuable. What is so great about film is like if you want to watch a like a Yasujiro Ozu film or an Akira Kurosawa film, you're not just seeing Japan, but you're seeing the culture and you're seeing it from somebody of that culture. And with subtitles, we can have this doorway into not only another culture, but another time too. You can see Japan in in the 1940s or, or, and then actually in the 1600s or whatever, whenever a lot of those um, samurai epics are, are set with Akira Kurosawa. And I also think that there are, when you watch a lot of world cinema, obviously there's going to be a lot of differences between different directors, but there is kind of a French sensibility that comes through in the films from France and an Italian sensibility in Italy and Japan big time too. And Korea now as well as a, as a hugely, like I love the Korean films I've seen over the last couple of years. Yeah, me too. Me too. I just watched one this last week. I watched a uh, poetry by Lee Chang Dong. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he directed, um, 
Burning was one from a couple of years that got a lot of okay, a lot of acclaim. Anyways, yeah, I agree with you about South Korea. There's a lot of parts of the globe that aren't covered um, because there is no film industry, but it can be such a such a gateway into other cultures, other ways of life, and other periods of time. Also, I mean, it's the history of film is limited to to a hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course you can read things from other cultures too, but you know, there's that saying lost in translation. And I do, f- I do think that there can be quite a bit. That also get- a great film. It's a great <laughs> film. A lot can get lost in translation and with film, only the dialogue is being translated. So there's a lot that remains intact. And in translation, you don't know how maybe they're like making more literal. What's like a, expression in that language that doesn't translate at well at all so it becomes like a very short translation when really there's a lot more packed into it yeah that always bothered me when i was reading translated works especially by like if you're gonna read like marcel proust it's like (laughs) how how close is this to his language can it even be translated i mean i guess the trick is you'll never really know you'll never really unless it's like nabokov who just translated it himself right so anyways film is is such a great way to to look into other cultures and i watch you know a good deal of the films that i watch are not Mm. um from north america so right well, just before we wrap up, I want to do a fun little uh, rapid fire okay. session here with you. <laughs> so do your best to not think too much about these, but I'm going to go through the genres and you tell me your favorite film in that genre. Okay. And I'll try and I'll try to do the same. All right. So let's start. We'll start with my other podcast, uh, Horror. What's your favorite horror film of all time? The Shining. Good answer. I think The Shining is my classic answer, mm-hmm. although... Maybe it's the recency bias. I'm going to say Hereditary. I don't know if you've ever seen Hereditary. I have. But that movie blew me away the first time I watched it. I don't want to spoil it. The best parts are spoilers, so I'm not going to spoil it. But it blew me away. That's more like sincere horror movie. My favorite ironic, silly ones is Scream. I love Scream. I love all the Scream movies. I think they are a romp, and I love them. I would go, if we're going to go for like art house horror, the the lighthouse would be a big one for me. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, Okay, comedy. Favorite comedy of all time? Dazed and Confused. Okay. I'm going to say Super Bad. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I still get a kick out of... Because um, I was a kind of halfway loser. Yeah. <laughs> right? So I, I definitely felt the, the Seth and Evan pains of the world. Sure. <laughs> when I was in high school. Not not to quite to their degree, but they were recognizable to me. <laughs> yeah. I I don't watch a lot of straight comedy mm-hmm. but super bad's definitely yeah would be up well hot take i don't think they're as good anymore yeah i think we had a good run in our era sure there just aren't as many anymore drama i'm gonna go with um late spring by yasajira ozu okay i feel like this is where memento is mm. but maybe it's thriller but i'll 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 say drama yeah it's memento for me it's also a mystery who knows maybe that'll be my answer for all of them <laughs> uh action adventure or action, action movie. For me, it's a tie between The Matrix and Die Hard. <laughs> I was going to go with Die Hard. Die Hard was on my mind. Mm. I think I might go with... Um, actually, I am going to go with um, Casino Royale. Oh, okay. That's a good one. 
favorite plot twist of all time or movie with your favorite plot twist of all time uh it's got to be psycho okay yeah that's a good one again the real answer is memento for me but actually the one that i remember having the most emotional reaction to when it happened was the first saw movie okay and then i don't know mystery i guess favorite mystery film run out of genres that one should be easy (laughs) (laughs) I think the one that comes to mind for me is um, Mystic River. That's a great film. That was a great mystery yeah. movie, too. I actually have that one on my computer waiting to be watched. This is another one that we will be covering on the show, The Conversation uh, by Francis Ford Coppola. Okay. And then maybe lastly, uh, favorite war movie? <sighs> Come and See. Yeah. Directed by Ellen Klimov. It's a Russian World War II movie, Mm. but in terms of a more familiar one to many people, The Thin Red Line. Mm. Yeah, I want to say Saving Private Ryan because it was very formative to me. It was like the first adult movie I was ever allowed to watch, Mm -hmm. but probably I'm going to say Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah. You can't go wrong. Something something about that film. There's almost something spiritual about Apocalypse Now, and I'm not a metaphysical type of person but i get that feeling watching apocalypse now so i agree it's like the church of film is that kind of movie and i think that apocalypse now is actually a better film than the ones that i picked it's just so much its own thing that i hardly even think of it in the legacy of war films sure 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 but I, I would love to rewatch Saving Private Ryan. It's been probably 20 years. Yeah. And then final question in all of this. If you could only watch one movie for the rest of your life, which one would you pick? I'd probably go with Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. Mm. There's just something about it that that is endlessly rewatchable to me. Right. Well, my heart wants to say Star Wars A New Hope because of what that movie has meant to my life. But my head also picks up and says, well, no, Luke, you love quirky dialogue and endless jokes that you can. Uh, so to, to I guess what I'm really asking is, what do I think is the most rewatchable movie I've ever seen? Mm. And it's definitely The Big Lebowski. So oh, that yeah. would be the one that would be for me is The Big Lebowski. I just find a, a new thing I hadn't noticed at some point. It could be just something in the bowling alley or something Donnie says that I hadn't really thought about before. So... That's a great choice. Wrap up thoughts. Any other thing you haven't said you wanted to say or thoughts about film that you love that you haven't said yet? I think I think I got most of it out there, you know. There's um it's not like I'm going to stop talking about uh films anytime <laughs> sure, <yeah>. soon, <laughs> <Yeah>. but for... <laughs> say it now and then forever hold your peace. <laughs> but for one day, I think that's good for me. Yeah, okay. Well, I want to say a big thanks, Alex, for coming on the show. And where can, for those who haven't been listening, where can the good listener find your show slash any other content that you might be involved in? Well, it streams on Tuesdays at 3 on Kootenai Co-op Radio, CJLY 93.5 FM in Nelson. It also is on Mixcloud. And you have to search for the username Lexacorm, L-E-X-A-C-O-R-M. Long story how it turned out that way. But if you go to Mixcloud Lexacorm, you'll see Full Spectrum Cinema there. And uh, I think there's about 35 shows Mm -hmm. that uh, have been recorded. 
and the last four with you. Yeah, so if you haven't got enough of the dulcet, euphonious tones of our voices <laughs> here, you can go saturate yourself all the more. A lot of sweet tones happening over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, again, big thanks, Alex. This is a lot of fun. And I think probably there'll be more episodes with you on, maybe about specific movies or specific genres, that kind of thing. This is a good, I think this is a good first salvo, as it's a very general feeling about movies. But obviously, given what movies are, we can have great episodes on more specific elements of it. So I look forward to that. Me too. I'd be happy to be your your resident movie nerd. <laughs> yeah, my movie nerd correspondent. Exactly. The podcast needs all sorts of correspondents. <laughs> so uh, I want to say a big thank you to anyone who listens to this podcast. You can find the group on Facebook, The Liberal Soul. You can send me an email at theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. I have a Twitter at liberalsoul87, as well as I'm on, um, or the podcast is on the major podcasting apps. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate a rating and or review. That's a good way to help new people find the show. Once again, thank you, Alex, for being on the show. And thanks you to everyone who listens. You found the liberal soul.